I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by the Oklahoma State Medical Association, cornerstone of Oklahoma medicine with physician members who are committed to better health for all Oklahomans. Learn more at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat is bursting Governor Stitt's tax cut balloon. Treat says his chamber will appear on Monday as ordered by the governor for special session. However, he says the Senate will then immediately adjourn without doing any work. The governor wanted lawmakers to provide cuts to income taxes. Neva, are you surprised by Treat's announcement? No, I think that's what we talked about uh, Mm -hmm. last week, speculating that it might be a repeat. Uh, Once again, this is the second time in four months that the governor has called a special session for tax cuts, only to be basically shut down uh, by the the pro tem in the Senate. And so um, it remains to be seen what the House does. Uh, Certainly Charles McCall has expressed uh, a great deal of interest in tax cuts uh, this session. I think he's filed, pre-filed four or five bills to that effect. Uh, Will they take a vote on on, uh, what the uh, governor uh, made this special session call about? Um, maybe, maybe not. But at the end of it, it's uh, it's a dead it's 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 a dead proposition without the Senate uh, coming to the table to play. So, you know, and I think it's interesting too. It's the prelim to the regular session where, again, this uh, 0.25 percent income tax cut, about 250 million dollars, is on the table with a lot of other tax cuts. Uh, 287 million, I think, is the figure always tossed out for the grocery tax. A lot of bipartisan support we've talked talked about, um, and support in both the House and the Senate among Republicans for the grocery tax. So we'll see what happens. It's an election year. Um, Something probably will happen. We'll have to see at the end of the day who comes out on top and winning with their proposition. Ryan. We're going to have to start calling these special sessions. They're not special anymore. (laughs) Extraordinary. If every session is special, like you say that to all the sessions, uh, you know, this is... um, this is no surprise. We knew that uh, the president pro temp had really no appetite for the governor's what he calls, uh, what the pro temp calls, a political uh, uh, part of political theater, and that you know, the governor should have known at the outset, whenever he called this special session, that there was going to be no movement on these bills. And you know, maybe this is the governor trying to use his bully pulpit to tee up the issue of tax cuts. But as Neva said, that's really kind of unnecessary at this point, given the fact that. The speaker himself has five tax cut bills that have been filed. Um, we know that grocery tax is still out there, large bipartisan support, like you said, Neva, and we've talked about regularly on this show. I don't think there's any surprise that tax cuts are going to be a big part of this legislative session, You know, not the least of which uh, of the reasons is because we're walking into a campaign cycle and everybody likes to go knock on doors and talk about tax cuts. Well, so, it, it's yeah. interesting, too. The Board of Equalization has not met and put their numbers out, and I thought it was... Uh, um, an interesting twist to hear 
pro tem treats say basically that he thought that the governor's numbers that he was using were simply not accurate mm-hmm. in, in, in this whole equation and argument for pushing for this tax cut now in a special session. So uh, will there be, will that, you know, really pose a big wrinkle in the whole conversation of what they do mm-hmm. budget-wise this session? I think that also remains to be seen. And I think Senator Treat is reflecting the tone that we see consistently out of the Senate and have seen for the last few years in particular with you know, Senator Treat as President Pro Temp and Roger Thompson as Chairman of Appropriations. Senator Thompson is the chair in that, the, 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 basically the Budget Committee uh, in the Senate and is going to have final say over whether these tax cut bills advance or not, along with uh, President Pro Temp Treat. Both of those men have said uh, over and over again that they will not uh, pass fiscal policy that puts a burden, uh, the, an unfunded burden on future legislative bodies. They're not going to take money away that you know, may be one-time monies that they can't you know, fill somewhere else. And they're also going to consider the effects of cuts that may have to happen because of those uh, to services. So you have a, a very slow, deliberative uh, fiscal policy that has been well-established over in the Senate. And these kind of haphazard, let's do this, uh, put it up on the board and vote it uh, and get it out to my desk so I can sign it. That is just not the way that the state Senate's working right now. Now, coming up on an election year, there's going to be leadership changes. Uh, there's a race for the pro temp right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who the next chairman of appropriations is, who's the next pro temp is, that may change things for the governor for his last two years in office. State Superintendent Ryan Walters has appointed a far-right influencer to p- position on the Department of Education's Library Media Advisory Committee. Chaya Rychik, the founder of Libs of TikTok, made headlines for altering a Tulsa school teacher's post, resulting in bomb threats against the district. This comes after a recent report showing Oklahoma paid Walters more than $4,000 in out-of-state travel expenses for speaking engagements, media appearances, and an anti-abortion horror film premiere. Ryan, do you think these might be connected? Uh, absolutely, I think that they're connected. I, there's a very technical political science term for this. It's called fanboying out. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's what we're seeing the, the Secretary of Education doing right now. He's, he's, he's a fanboy. He wants to associate himself with these people that he thinks have you know larger-than-life uh, uh, personas and, and, and exist in this, this TikTok sphere, which, you know, by the way, the governor should be really upset about this. We're not supposed to be TikTok fans in Oklahoma. And, and you talk about, uh, you know, Ryan Walters and his campaign against, you know, communist China. This is a communist China product uh, that, is, that is, you know, being used by, you know, millions of Americans. And, and here he is promoting one of its top influencers to a position in the state of Oklahoma's uh, education system. I, I think that this is, and let's, let's, let's not give the, uh, the superintendent the kind of the intellectual benefit of the doubt here, but it, this does have a couple of effects that you know, may be unintended uh, from, from his uh, position as a fanboy, but one is that it's a continued effort to distract from all of these ongoing investigations, including investigations that could be criminal in nature. Um, these, these are going on in the background. We don't hear a lot about them, but you can rest assured that uh, investigators at the state and federal level are continuing to look into dealings with the education department uh, and the superintendent himself. And then the second part of it is that he's playing into this Republican primary base. I think most Oklahomans hear this stuff. You know, the $4,000 travel bill where he's applying for jobs in case he doesn't get elected governor and he might be able to go work on the podcast circuit, on the right-wing podcast circuit. Um, most Oklahomans hear that and they think, this is ridiculous. What are we doing here? But you don't have to talk to most Oklahomans or get the vote of most Oklahomans to win an office, even statewide office in Oklahoma right now. Often you're trying to win a Republican primary, and in many instances for these statewide positions, a Republican primary runoff. And those 
uh, electorates are very different. They're smaller. They're much more conservative. And they're, they're voters that are going to be much more receptive to somebody from TikTok who has been the progenitor of, of bomb threats against Oklahoma schools uh, coming in and taking over this position in state education policy. Neva? Well, I think it it is interesting, and I think it's important for our listeners to understand, I mean, that this individual is now sitting on a state committee that evaluates library content. She doesn't live in the state of Oklahoma. Her basic uh, claim to fame or what she brings in this equation appears to be this. Uh, she is a uh, uh, she's a social media uh, person who basically started two or three years ago, had been formerly a real estate agent, according to some of the reports that I read, and now has um, a Twitter account or an X account that has over 2 million followers as of March of last year. And even with the temporary suspensions and permanent suspensions from TikTok that she's had, she still has become this player on the scene. She's been promoted uh, by Donald Trump Jr. and uh, Tucker Carlson and Jesse Walters and Laura Ingram. All of these folks that uh, have this kind of network out there of people that feed them um, story content, basically, uh, day in and day out on their, on their programs. In the instance, as you referred to, Ryan, I mean, I think last summer uh, she uh, was responsible for an altered video that uh, was from an elementary librarian uh, uh, at a Tulsa Union uh, public school. And basically uh, what she talked about uh, she was this idea that it was about a woke agenda, and yet the video, what had, what had been left out and altered in the video, was the caption that said that her radical liberal agenda, as it was mm-hmm. as it was described, was teaching kids to love books and be kind. But as a result of that, there were bomb threats. There there was much that ensued after that. So this is this is the kind of individual now on a voluntary board that the that the superintendent exclusively has control of deciding who who is on and who who become mem- who become members of this particular uh, committee, and I think it it just heightens the focus um, about what what this is all about. And when you think about the fact that in his own words he he talked about how she was an invaluable member of this committee uh, to kind of do what they wanted to see done in terms of dealing with his mantra of. Uh, eliminating woke ideology in the schools and getting the getting certain books out of the library. So again, it fans a flame. It doesn't probably get as much attention in Oklahoma as it does, as you mentioned, in the political dynamic of two million people that are now hearing that name, seeing him, being exposed at these different uh, venues and events that he's going to sets him up to have a national network. And if someone's running for higher office or running for reelection, that's certainly an attractive component to the political equation. So this is not going to go away. I think the scrutiny is fair to any public official, certainly someone elected to statewide office. Uh, and the voters ultimately are going to get to decide whether they like what goes on uh, year in and year out during his uh, uh, time as the state superintendent. And whether he becomes a candidate for another office, they will again have the opportunity to decide that as well. And let's remember when these bomb threats came in, Rychek, you know, unlike a, a normal human being uh, responding to this, uh, didn't say, oh my gosh, what have I done? I'm so sorry. That wasn't my intention. You know, I was just poking fun or I wanted to, you know, draw attention to whatever it was. Um, 
they, you know, she celebrated this. I mean, she celebrated the bomb threats that were made against Oklahoma public schools, where our students, including my kids, go to these schools. Uh, she celebrated that. That is just insane. Uh, and, and for somebody to do that and then be rewarded for it, you know, you're, you're a co-conspirator with somebody whenever you're doing that. And when she started her social media back in 2020, it was, it was after she had been at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, maybe she made this statement and tweeted that she didn't enter the building, but she talked about how it was mostly a peaceful uh, demonstration and on and on. And from that, it just kind of continued in the next couple of years where she it seemed to be a case of her evolving into someone who wanted to really concentrate in this area of, uh, of wokeism, attacking, um, and becoming much more sensationalized. And I think as a result, we see the proliferation not only in her numbers and her, uh, and her followers, but the fact that she is weighing in politically, whether it's just in Oklahoma with Ryan Walters or whether it's in multiple states, we don't know. But uh, clearly this is someone that's uh, probably going to continue to be on the, the radar and, and have to be looked at uh, in the months to come. Governor Stitt taps a school choice supporter as his new education secretary. Nellie Taylor Sanders of Kingfisher recently served on the statewide virtual charter school board where she voted in favor of a controversial Catholic charter school. Neva, what do you think of this appointment? Well, I think, again, the governor has, it's his prerogative to make this appointment. Uh, it's someone that he's familiar with, someone that uh, he uh, has already seen at work on the statewide virtual charter school board. She now she now officially steps off as a member. She becomes still an ex officio member at, by, by virtue of her new appointment as a cabinet secretary. So... Um, she is someone that I, I think whether whether anyone likes a person's uh, take on um, who is selected by the governor, I think when you look at the fact that she is clearly a very uh, thoughtful uh, person who is interested in education, interested in uh, making a contribution in public service, just like her husband who served 12 years in the legislature, now is in a, in a uh, uh, in the capacity of being head of the broadband uh, office, uh, also um, someone who's very politically connected and was involved in education um, uh, education bills during his time in the legislature. So um, I think I think the verdict's out. I mean, I think what what we saw even with uh, Chairman Franklin is that uh, he said it was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, he 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 applauded her for uh, you know stepping up, being willing to serve, but uh, had questions about all that kind of swirls around this mm -hmm. uh, continued controversy with the backdrop of this lawsuit that continues to inch forward. Uh, ultimately, with most people believing that it will wind up in the United States Supreme Court, so. Um, you know, I think uh, it will be interesting to see what uh, what the broad reaction is. But I think in general, I think you have to say uh, the verdict is out. But uh, she has certainly, Nellie Sanders has certainly proven to be someone who is dedicated to public service and has done a good job in the in the roles that she's played thus far. And I think that's what uh, any governor looks for in terms of making an appointment. Also, someone that is uh, um, pretty much aligned with his thinking. That's mm -hmm. not uh, that's not surprising, nor is it out of line. So um, we'll just we'll wait and see kind of how this moves forward. But I think the refreshing news is the governor has made an appointment of a secretary of education to his cabinet, mm -hmm. and that was long overdue. Right. Well, I think it was probably long overdue because you're looking for somebody that's willing to take that job. You you look you know the the last secretary 
stepped down because she couldn't get her phone calls returned by the superintendent of public instruction. So when, when Ryan Walters, the person that is your, your statewide elected official that you're supposed to work uh, alongside as a cabinet secretary, won't even communicate with you or give you basic information, um, and, and then you're expected to make decisions or give advice uh, without this information, it puts an enormous liability on your back mm-hmm. as the secretary. And, uh, and I think that the last secretary was right to say, I want to be a part of this, but at some point I'm throwing my hands up and I'm not going to go down with the ship just because the the guy at the helm won't show me what the heck he's doing. Well, and, and it's interesting. Ryan Walters immediately issued a press statement yeah. basically applauding uh, the governor's selection, talking about how he believes she had a deep commitment to literacy and, and uh, student achievement and went on and on. So if that sets the stage where there's a better relationship, if there's better communication, Kind of like the restart we've seen uh, in the uh, legislature with uh, some of the some of the uh, lawmakers who had been skirmishing back and forth of the, the superintendent and and others. Uh, then it's a good day for everyone because then we see some forward motion that's positive, at least in conversation, communication, and uh, transparency that I think the public public ultimately wants to see. And I think that that's probably was, uh, I assume, one of the top factors for the governor is is who's going to be someone that can step into this role mm-hmm. and is going to be able to you know hit that reset. And you know, so I think everyone benefits uh, if Sanders is able to do that um, and is able to you know you know bring a more grown-up conversation, uh, you know, not that it hasn't happened from the former secretaries, but for a more grown-up conversation from, this, from the uh, elected uh, statewide superintendent to the table uh, and at least, you know, give basic information. I think that that's a big deal. You know, looking back at what the, uh, the chair of the statewide virtual charter school board said, Robert Franklin, and you mentioned him earlier, and he said it was kind of a mixed bag. And I, I do think that we, we have to look at what's the most consequential decision uh, that Nellie Sanders has made in public. And the most consequential decision that she's ever made was one that would just radically upend the very basic notion of uh, public schools being non-sectarian, non-religious schools. And that was the, the biggest decision that she's ever made publicly. Um, and that's probably, you know, from the perspective of a lot of public school advocates, from a lot of uh, people that believe in the separation of church and state, one of the worst policy decisions the state's ever experienced. So. You know, that is interesting, but you, it's not surprising that the governor's brought somebody in that he believes in. He's he's certainly not the, the guy who read Doris Kearns B- Goodwin's book, uh, Team of Rivals, and thought, boy, I'm going to bring in a bunch of uh, disparate voices and, and hear all points of opinion. He really wants somebody, uh, he wants people close to him that agree with him. Uh, and you know, for, for better or worse, that's really what we've seen over, especially his first term, and we're continuing to see into his second term. And that 3-2 vote is fascinating when you think about it. I mean, you first had Brian Bobek, who mm-hmm. um, who, who stepped down and then was hired as the deputy chief of staff to the governor. You have Nellie Sanders, who is now the secretary of education. Um, and then you had the third individual of those three votes, who basically immediately resigned and moved uh, out of state. I tell so, it to Texas. <laughs> so so it, it is going to be a continued conversation because of the fact that we're we're seeing this uh, we're seeing these lawsuits um, and and we see the fact that the attorney general, as we remember, weighed in early and said this is not a good move when mm-hmm. the board was making that vote that that should not happen. He has he has a lawsuit in front of the uh, 
state Supreme Court. There's been no movement, as far as I know, no date, uh, mm-hmm. you know, any anything happening in that regard. And then you have the one in district court. So we're going to be talking about this probably all through, you know, all throughout this year and beyond, just because of, as you say, of the enormous ramifications of what the, of what this ultimately will decide one direction or the other. Right. And speaking of that lawsuit, the judge in the lawsuit challenging uh, Catholic charter school. He got removed from the case. Oklahoma County Chief District Judge called for Brent Dishman's removal after plaintiffs argued about a conflict of interest. One of the issues includes Dishman's position on College of the Ozarks board, which previously hired several of the defense attorneys in a separate case with similar issues. Ryan, are you surprised about Judge Dishman's removal? No, I'm not surprised about his removal at all. I'm, I'm not surprised that he wanted to stay on the case. Uh, you know, I, I know Judge Dishman. He and I went to law school together. We shared a, the same section, and so it's it's fun to see start to see these section mates <laughs> of mine showing up in the news more and more. Uh, but yeah, this is a this is an an enormous case that could have uh, enormous consequences for constitutional law across the nation. And if you're a district judge in Oklahoma County and this judge and this case just lands on your docket, well, you want to keep it. And so, uh, of course he wanted to keep it. And I, I think that he made a good argument for, for why he could be able to, uh, uh, hear the case and hear it dispassionately and, and, uh, and, and without bias. Um, but I think Judge Palumbo, who's the chief judge who heard the ultimate recusal motion after he decided not to recuse himself, um, you looked at those two points. You know, one, he's related to one of the uh, uh, individuals that is a senior member in the plaintiff organization, in the plaintiff, or one of the organizations that's a plaintiff in the case, and then his uh, position on this on this college board. Uh, so, they, I think Judge Palumbo did the right thing. It's been reassigned to Judge Richard Ogden right now. Um, you know, I again, I think Judge Dishman most likely could have heard this case and done a great job, but of a case of this importance and this magnitude. The last thing you want to do is to get to a point at an appellate proceeding uh, where you're questioning the uh, the potential bias of a judge. You know, this this needs to be on the law, straight up and down. I think Judge Palumbo saw that, and I think Judge Ogden is going to see that through now that he's presiding judge over this case. Neva, I agree. I think the fact that they they address this, that Judge Palumbo addressed this as quickly as she did, and the case now has been reassigned, as you say, to Judge Ogden, it can move forward. And I think uh, I think even the statement was made something to the effect that uh, the the recusal request wasn't personal. I mean, it mm-hmm. was really something mm-hmm. that that uh, that the plaintiffs felt very passionately needed to happen and for the reasons that they outlined. So um, this is this is taken care of. I mean, from the legal from the legal standpoint of uh, who's going to now be uh, hearing hearing the case, we'll see how quickly it moves forward. Governor Stitt reached a compact agreement with the Chickasaw Nation in regard to tobacco taxes and car tags. The agreement is seen as significant for the governor and the tribe. Neva, for those of our listeners who don't know, why is this such a big deal? Well, I mean, first of all, um, it's it's an it's an important thing for both the state and the and the tr- and the tribes in terms of getting an agreement. Period. I think the fact that that this process kind of took place quietly behind the scenes, that they they worked through the details, there was the give and take, both parties ultimately came, coming to the table, uh, the agreements were signed, and I think it is significant because it probably opens the door for many more of these arrangements, agreements, uh, with other tribal leaders. And so I think the the forward motion, I think as we've seen, even with the, with the legislature, um, they wanted to see a better relationship between, uh, between state government 
and and the tribes and i think this is certainly the move in the right direction not to say that at while all of that seemed to be going on behind the scenes there was still this kind of uh, uh, perception and kind of back and forth out front uh, with the skirmish over that that certain tribal leaders said that they wouldn't participate in the task force that the governor recently uh, put together so there's still i mean it's not a kumbaya time it's it's a it's an instance where we're seeing um, important compacts being reached on tobacco and car tags and, and things that affect regular everyday folks uh, in that world. And it's important that uh, I think that we pay attention to the fact that these these leaders on all sides, I mean, you have to give the governor credit. You have to give, in this instance, Governor Anatubby credit with the Chickasaw Nation uh, for doing what is uh, a smart business pragmatic approach to taking care of something that was lingering and needed a long-term agreement for the benefit of all parties. Ryan. And, and Chairman Duro Cooper from the uh, from the Apache tribe, uh, you know, they were part of this compacting process um, in a rare instant to kind of demonstrate how, how all uh, the magnitude of this uh, you know, first of all, it happened with this news came out when it was just really cold in Oklahoma. So, so you know, news consumers would have been con- been right to think, well, did hell actually freeze over? Because here we are, and and we're getting compacts with the governor and a and a major tribe in the state of Oklahoma. Um, but it, this is, I think, forward progress. The compacts themselves really don't move the needle for the state or the tribe a whole lot. Uh, in 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 most instances. Uh, they preserved the status quo with regard to license plates tags. Uh, you know, the state got some you know, greater guarantee that the license plates from uh, the Chickasaw Nation will be readable by uh, Oklahoma law enforcement and turnpike uh, reading uh, cameras uh, or the, the cameras that turnpike uh, machines that you know, see whether or not we're going up and down the turnpike and, and charging us appropriately. Um, so that's something that the state gets out of this. It does limit jurisdiction, uh, you know, especially on the on the tobacco compact uh, to allotment land, which is you know kind of the way that the state had recognized tribal jurisdiction prior to McGirt, which then expanded j- tribal jurisdiction and Indian Country definition to all of the past reservation territory that had not been abrogated by Congress. So um, it does kind of lock in this old allotment land, at least for uh, uh, tobacco uh, sales. Uh, so if you've got and they're going to split revenue 50-50 between the tribe and the and the state. And it still allows tribal uh, tobacco sales to non-tribal citizens on tribal land. Um, that's that's kind of the status quo. And you know to be able to do that and lock it in for 10 years versus the the one year mm-hmm. that everybody was looking at from the legislature. You know, Senate President Pro Temp uh, <coughs> Senate President Pro Temp uh, Greg Treat put out a press release saying that he was uh, you know thankful for this movement, um, but that he didn't believe that it would have happened if the legislature hadn't stepped in. And I think he's absolutely right. Uh, the legislature you know, really dipped its toe, maybe its whole foot in the water, uh, in saying if the governor can't compact with the tribes, if he can't bring himself to compact with the tribes in a responsible way, mm-hmm. the legislature will take this over. And we'll go to court. We'll defend our position to be able to do that. And frankly, I think that their legal positioning to be able to uh, compact from the legislative side of things is a very strong case. Um, so I do think that the legislators, legislature's involvement had a big role in, in uh, getting this along. And then finally, you've got the attorney general. This is the, kind of the, the, the last remarkable thing of this. Uh, the attorney general getting her drumming, praising the governor uh, over tribal relations in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, general Drummond has been one of the, uh, the largest, most vocal critics of the governor's inability to 
bridges differences with sovereign nations, sovereign tribal nations in the state of Oklahoma, and create responsible policy that benefits all mm-hmm. Oklahomans. And to kind of demonstrate the, the character that we see out of General Drummond, here's a guy who is, this is kind of unusual in politics today, to step back and say, I'm going to congratulate you when you do something right. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though we've been political opponents on this, I see good movement over here. I'm going to congratulate you. And so, you know, that's, that in and of itself is kind of unusual in modern politics. Absolutely. And I think the fact that it w- the significance of this is whenever you can create a, an environment that's a stable regulatory environment, it's a good thing mm-hmm. for the state of Oklahoma. And I think out of this, all parties can step back and kind of applaud and, and uh, congratulate each other for the fact that they were willing to, to make this move. And this 10-year final deal is something that uh, I think is significant and may open the door to many more opportunities for more constructive conversation with all of these, uh, all of these parties in, in the year to come. Earlier this week, we received word that longtime Oklahoma County public defender Bob Ravitz passed away at the age of 71. Ravitz spent more than 35 years as a public defender. Ryan, what are your thoughts on his passing? This is an enormous uh, and unexpected tragic loss for the <clears throat> Oklahoma legal community, and in particular the, the individuals that uh, Mr. Ravitz, everybody called him boss, uh, served and his team served for you know, decades. I mean, he's spans multiple district attorneys' uh, uh, tenures in his position as the chief public defender in Oklahoma County. And uh, it was, I think I was among the number of lawyers uh, that you know, considered him a friend and in many instances a mentor, somebody that uh, I would regularly reach out to uh, with, with questions, with advice, uh, sometimes just, you know, to uh, maybe just a word of reassurance uh, mm-hmm. from Bob to, to let us, you know, because for a guy like that who has the perspective of decades of, Doing very difficult work in very difficult situations. Uh, it was important for uh, you know younger lawyers like myself uh, to be able to hear from somebody that has been doing this for so long. Um, so I started getting you know text messages from people in his office, and uh, the news kind of shocked everyone. The courthouse, from what I understand, uh, kind of came to a halt uh, in many instances because uh, judges were scrambling to you know one appoint a, a replacement, an interim replacement, which they did, and you know that's going to be. Uh, Bridget Biffle, uh, who I worked with uh, briefly when I'm of counsel at Overman Legal Group. She was there <clears throat> briefly and then went back to the public defender's office. I think Bridget's going to do a wonderful job as interim. Those are enormous shoes to fill. Um, but, you know, losing Bob Ravitz uh, for so many lawyers, uh, the number of lives he's changed and touched and the individuals that he's represented and his team have represented who probably don't even know his name, yeah. but their lives are better today because of his service. Um, you know, he is, he is really... Uh, if if you ask me to point to an attorney uh, in the state of Oklahoma or really anywhere uh, as exemplary of what it means to be an advocate, uh, to be a counselor, and to give your life uh, to the law um, uh, selflessly, Bob Ravitz is that man. My condolences to uh, his family. My condolences to his, his current team sitting at the public defender's office right now that I know are, are still reeling from this loss and, and to the entire Oklahoma legal community. Neva. No question. While I didn't have the opportunity to personally know uh, Bob Ravitz, I have followed and watched with uh, great interest uh, his 35-year career. I mean, someone who, as the chief public defender in Oklahoma County, I think you're right, Ryan, without question, um, the terms that have been um, uh, attached to this loss and and people's uh, response to it, the fact that he was a legal giant, uh, a champion for criminal justice, as someone who absolutely does have a lasting legacy, I mean, I, I was always uh, 
amazed. And then when I read again the fact that he became, when he became Oklahoma County's uh, lead public defender back in the, the 1980s, uh, he argued before the U.S. Supreme Court a case which the court unanimously ruled at that time that Oklahoma's standard for determining competency of a defendant was unconstitutional. I mean, mm-hmm. what an amazing mm-hmm. case and, and something uh, decades ago, and yet uh, having someone like that in the classroom uh, teaching young uh, up-and-coming uh, uh, lawyers, I mean, amazing. And the fact that uh, throughout his career, he was someone who was respected by virtually everyone from all walks of life. I yeah. mean, when you when you hear and read the statements that have been issued across the board, I mean, they they express how significant his career was, how um, how he truly was. I think if someone wanted to epitomize a public servant, mm. Bob Rabbits would be that individual. And I I join you. Uh, uh, in expressing my condolences to the family and to the all of those who worked worked beside him for decades and those who uh, were ultimately um, impacted in a positive way by his role as a public defender. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Jenny May Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.